Welcome, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the Z Files, now streaming from Amazon Music. I am Professor Z, your criminologist enthusiast turned podcaster. This podcast is your one stop shop for all things crime related. Say goodbye to the fear you think you have about crime and say hello to your new expertise in the field of criminology. There's Mrs. Kennedy, and the crowd yells, and the President of the United States. And I can see his suntan all the way from here. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The President's car is now going past me. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. Put me on, Phil. Put me on. I have just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. He and another priest tell me that the pair of men have just administered the last rites of the Catholic Church to President Kennedy. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The president is dead. In this episode, I will take you back to an infamous day in America's history, the day President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And I will present the evidence I have found behind who orchestrated his death. It's 6.30 a.m. in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. Lee Harvey Oswald leaves the bed to prepare for work. He puts his wedding ring and $170 from his wallet on his wife Marina's dresser. He drives to work with his co-worker Bill Wesley Fraser. Bell notices Oswald has an oblong parcel with him, but Oswald explains it's curtain rods for a room he rents at a boarding house, and Bell dismisses his curiosity. Meanwhile, President Kennedy is at the Hotel Texas in Fort Worth preparing for his day. His agenda includes three speeches in two different cities, a motorcade through Dallas, and then arrival at his final destination at the Johnson Ranch for a weekend of relaxation. By 10 a.m., He has finished with his first speech and returns to his suite in the Hotel Texas to freshen up before leaving the city. He remarks to his wife Jacqueline, You know, last night would have been a hell of a night to assassinate a president, referring to the motorcade through Fort Worth the night before. At 11.50 a.m. in Dallas, Oswald is spotted on the first floor of his office building eating lunch. Across town at Love Field, the president's motorcade departs and makes its way towards downtown Dallas. The president and his wife are seated in a modified 1961 Lincoln Continental four-door convertible without the plexiglass weather protection cover. Earlier that day, it had rained a little bit, but by noon, the sun was out, so the president decided to keep the car open and more visible to the crowds. By 12.29 p.m., the motorcade has moved through Dealey Plaza and rounded the corner onto Elm Street. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the trademark. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stemmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing 
up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. The first shot is fired from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. A spectator of the motorcade, James Tausch, is injured by a fragment of the bullet or debris from the street. Jacqueline Kennedy is startled as her husband's elbows suddenly jerk from their relaxed position up to his shoulders and he begins leaning towards her. President Kennedy has just been struck by the second shot in the back of the head. This injures the C6 area of his spine, causing him to take an immediate thornburn position. The thornburn position is characterized by an involuntary, distinct movement of the elbows to rear back as if someone is trying to stretch their chest muscles or loosen a tight spot between the shoulder blades, indicating a spinal injury. A third shot is fired and hits the president just behind his right ear. Jacqueline Kennedy tries to cradle her husband, then frantically crawls over the back of the car to signal someone for help. As the president is rushed to the hospital and local authorities secure the scene, Oswald calmly strolls to a soda machine to buy a Coca-Cola. During the aftermath, multiple people come forward with a description of Oswald as a person of interest seen exiting the vicinity of where law enforcement expected the shooter to be. At 12.35 p.m., just five minutes after the shooting, the president's limo arrives at Parkland Memorial Hospital. At 12.57 p.m., President John F. Kennedy was pronounced dead by Dr. Kemp Clark and his personal physician, Admiral Dr. George Berkeley. John F. Kennedy died at approximately 1 o'clock Central Standard Time today here in Dallas. His time of death was most likely much earlier. However, Jacqueline was worried about him receiving his Catholic last rites before he died, so they delayed pronouncing his death until Father Oscar Huber arrived at the hospital. Arrangements are made to have a coffin bought from nearby to take Kennedy's body back to D.C. on Air Force One the same day. Because a presidential assassination was not a federal offense at this time, there was confusion over who had authority to release the body or demand an autopsy. But eventually, Dallas District Attorney Henry Wade agrees to release the body only if Kennedy's private physician, Dr. Berkeley, will promise to stay with the body until it is put in the casket for the final time. Vice President Johnson then had to call John Kennedy's brother, Robert, who was the Attorney General, to not only confirm more details of his brother's death, but also to start the process of transferring the presidency. Meanwhile, police are patrolling the area looking for the shooter, who has already been described by multiple witnesses. Officer J.D. Tippett radioed in to report speaking to someone who matched Oswald's description. Moments later, Officer Tippett was reported dead by a civilian. At 1.40 p.m., Oswald is taken into custody by force in a movie theater where he was attempting to watch the film War is Hell. At this time, he is only charged with the death of Officer Tippett. By 2.38 p.m., President Kennedy's body was on the way to Air Force One in the locally purchased coffin. There was no time to measure or customize the coffin size, so Secret Service had to break some of the handles off the coffin so that it would fit into the plane door. While they settled President Kennedy's body in the cargo area of Air Force One, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn into office in the passenger area by Judge Sarah T. Hughes, making him the first president to be sworn into office by a woman. At 2.38 in the forward cabin of Air Force One, a necessary ceremony. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. 
said I will faithfully execute. I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve. Preserve. Protect. Protect. Defend. Defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And help me He made the oath in the presence of his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, government officials, and Jacqueline Kennedy, who was still wearing the clothes stained by her husband's blood. For the rest of the evening, the assassin and the grieving family experienced two different types of a grueling day. Jacqueline Kennedy makes arrangements for John Kennedy's body to be embalmed and laid to repose in the White House in a manner that is identical to President Lincoln's funeral. Oswald was interrogated three times in relation to Officer Tippett's death. He was not charged with Kennedy's death until 1.35 a.m. the following morning. By 3.56 a.m. on November 23rd, not even 24 hours since he was shot, President Kennedy's body laid to rest in the White House with four soldiers on immediate guard. He would be laid in his final resting place at Arlington National Cemetery two days later on his son's third birthday. Irish Honor Guard with a flourish of arms, and the precious banner that was the President's shroud for three days is folded smartly for presentation to Mrs. Kennedy. On November 24, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot in the stomach by Jack Ruby as they were transferring him to another facility. He died that same day. These are the details of the assassination I have chosen for this episode. It was a famous event in America's history, so I'm sure the parts I talked about today were familiar to many of you listening. But maybe I have parts of this event to share that you are less familiar with. Have you heard of the conspiracy theory that the Mafia was behind the Kennedy assassination? Maybe you have and dismissed it. Kennedy's assassination has been the heart of many conspiracy theories, including one that he's still alive today. Personally, I wasn't drawn to Kennedy's assassination for the conspiracy theories. I was actually preparing a class on organized crime when my research about the different mafia leaders and investigations into their crimes brought me face to face with John Kennedy's death. In order to thoroughly explain these connections, I'm turning the clock back to the 1920s when the Sicilian Mafia rose to power. It was during Prohibition that these criminals made their billions and permanently established themselves in America's crime underworld. The Mafia goes by many names, including Cosa Nostra, The Family, The Outfit, The Mob, etc. The powerful leaders are known as bosses or godfathers. These bosses are not just constrained to New York City, but they can be found in many cities across the country, including Seattle, Washington, New Orleans, Tampa and Miami, Florida, Dallas, Texas, Chicago, and Las Vegas, just to name a few. Each city usually has one or more godfathers, and these godfathers have underbosses, captains, and soldiers underneath them 
to carry out their criminal empires. The Commission is essentially the council of the most powerful godfathers in the country, and it serves the purpose of aligning different organization goals as well as keeping territory lines defined. The Mafia has always held a strict code known as Omerta. This code values confidentiality above all else. Breaking the code is often met with death, and usually a very unpleasant one. The Mafia was shrouded in mystery for half a century, even though they had a booming criminal business. Even when there was suspicion about a nationwide network of organized crime, the only arm of the government with the jurisdiction and the resources to investigate it was directed by a man whose ego was too large to admit that these criminals had been outsmarting American criminal justice officials for so long. Now, this is all the overview we have time to cover for our purposes today, but if you want to learn more about organized crime in America, please let me know via the Z Files podcast at gmail.com or comment on this episode's post on the account Instagram profile. So let's hash out the Kennedy Mafia connection. The main reason a Mafia connection to Kennedy's assassination is officially discredited is due to the poor investigation that was done following the event. Much of the evidence of this connection was obtained unconstitutionally, and it was thus inadmissible in court. In the National Archives, you can find the document stating the Senate Committee's findings, and they state, they did not find evidence that the Soviet Union or the Cuban government were involved in the assassination, and that although they also couldn't find evidence of a national crime syndicate involved in the proceedings, that does not mean individual members of the syndicate weren't involved in the assassination. When they concluded this in their report, they didn't realize how much evidence had been destroyed. It was the way this investigation happened and the motives of those in charge that spun any mafia interference as conspiracy instead of reporting the facts for how they were. FBI Director Hoover was in charge of the investigation immediately following John Kennedy's death. He assigned the assassination probe to the FBI division that handled bank robbery and the destruction of federal property investigations. Those divisions were not qualified to investigate a president's assassination. The two most qualified FBI units involving national security and organized crime were obstructed from participating in the investigation. Now, there's no mystery here involving aliens or something weird with why Hoover gave the investigation over to an unqualified unit. It's really quite simple. The truth is, a more qualified group would have exposed the illegal bugging Hoover had been doing for decades. By the time the Congressional Committee began its work in the late 1970s to investigate the assassination, a lot of the recorded tapes with people talking about their hatred of the Kennedys had been destroyed. Evidence that many mob leaders feared Attorney General Robert Kennedy's vendetta against them and their hatred of the family were found by the Warren Commission's investigation in the FBI auto files recorded from Bugs. Most of the threats heard from mobsters were taken from snippets of longer conversations, but their message was clear. They despised the Kennedy brothers. I will share the snippets that were preserved long enough to reach the Senate Commission. In February 1962, FBI agents listened to inflammatory remarks between Ganello Bruno, the boss of the Philadelphia mob, and a trusted business associate, Willie Weisberg. Weisberg said, See what Kennedy done? With Kennedy, a guy should take a knife. 
like one of them other guys, and stab and kill him. Where he is now, I'll kill him. Right in the White House. Somebody's got to get rid of this. On May 2nd, 1962, agents overheard Michelino Clemente, an important captain of the Genovese crime family, express his views to several mob soldiers that Bob Kennedy won't stop today until he puts us all in jail over the country. Until the commission meets and puts its foot down, things will be at a standstill. A year later, in May 1963, Stefano Magadino, cousin of the godfather Joe Bonanno and member of the commission, was recorded talking about his anxiety about how much the government knew about Cosa Nostra and what the FBI was possibly obtaining through bugs. Little did he know he was being bugged at the time. A month before the assassination, Magadino's son Peter heatedly told his father that the president should drop dead. They should kill the whole family, the mother and father too. The Kennedy family's run-in with the mob actually starts with John Kennedy's dad, Joseph Kennedy. Before he was an ambassador to Great Britain, or even a father to the political dynasty of his sons, he was involved with bootlegging operations during Prohibition. Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana knew Joseph Kennedy during these days and sustained their relationship throughout the years. Illinois was critically important to the 1960 campaign and Giancana's political connections that delivered votes in Chicago at the request of Joseph Kennedy may have well tipped the scales towards John's win. While their father may have been friendly with the mob, Robert and John Kennedy had already started political efforts to dismantle organized crime before John Kennedy was ever president. Both brothers had served on the Senate's McClellan Committee on Organized Crime, John as a senator and Robert as legal counsel. This committee was dedicated to investigating the crimes of the Mafia, which at that point was a criminal entity the FBI denied existed. One of the main figures who held a grudge against the brothers was the New Orleans mob boss, Carlos Marcello. He was known to the police for serving nine years for assault and robbery charges, along with a bank robbery and marijuana charge thrown in here and there. Marcello was called to testify before the committee in 1959, but pled the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination and refused to testify. Shortly after, John Kennedy became president and appointed his brother Robert as attorney general. Robert used immigration law to have Marcello deported to Guatemala. He went from living a lavish lifestyle with mob soldiers at his every beck and call to exile in a country where he had no connections. He suffered greatly after being deposited in a small local jail and having to walk himself across country borders until he could utilize his connections. Eventually, he found his way back to the United States, and with his return, he brought a healthy loathing of the Kennedy family who had nearly dismantled his crime empire in New Orleans. In September of 1962, Carlos Marcello was quoted saying, Don't worry about that little Bobby son of a b He's going to be taken care of. Marcello told that same person that in order to get Bobby Kennedy, they would need to take out the president. They couldn't kill Bobby directly, because the president would use the army and the marines to get them. Marcello stated that killing President Kennedy would cause Bobby to lose his power as attorney general. Marcello also made a reference to President Kennedy being a dog, and Robert being a dog's tail. He said, the dog will keep biting you if you cut off its tail, but if the dog's head is cut off, the dog would die. 
The summer before Kennedy's assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald lived with his uncle, Charles Dutz Murrett, in New Orleans. His uncle was a well-known associate of the Marcello Organized Crime Group. Like the summer heat, political tensions rose that summer as President Kennedy backed his brother Robert to target organized crime activity in the United States. Their agenda deeply offended the mob across the country. They had enjoyed little legal attention from the government at this point. They were able to either pay off most officials, or if the crimes were found out, they were treated as isolated incidents that didn't lead back to the entire network of organized crime. What nerve did these Kennedy brothers have to put the mob on blast, especially after the Chicago outfit had helped obtain votes as a favor to Papa Kennedy? Not to mention, an attorney general with his brother as president to clear all the red tape and his mafia hunting agenda made an intimidating duo. Sixteen years after the Warren Commission finished their investigation, more indirect evidence surfaced about the Mafia's roles in the Kennedy assassination. The new information came from Frank Regano, a lawyer to the mob bosses Santo Traficante, Marcello, and Jimmy Hoffa. Santo Traficante had mob rockets in both Tampa and Miami, Florida. Him and Marcello's mob activity held down the Southern Mafia district in the country. Regano claimed that shortly before Traficante died, he made statements confirming the mob's orchestration of Kennedy's assassination. In the months before the assassination, Regano was at dinner with Sam Giancano of the Chicago Outfit, who said, That rat bastard son of a We broke our balls for him and gave him the election and gets his brother to hound us to death. Regano also recounted how Jimmy Hoffa had requested that Regano make a plan with Carlos Marcello to kill that son of a Kennedy. Regano thought it was a joke, but decided to relay the message to Marcello in a meeting they had together with Traficante the next day. When Regano told them the kill request from Hoffa, neither of the Godfathers laughed, but stared back in icy silence. On November 22, 1963, Jimmy Hoffa telephoned Regano at his office and said, Did you hear the good news? Yeah, he's dead. I heard over the news that Lyndon Johnson is going to be sworn in as president. You know he'll get rid of Booby, which was Hoffa's nickname for Robert Kennedy. And finally, one of the last confessions about the mob involvement in Kennedy's assassination came from Traficante when he was 72 years old. Now, this statement came about a quarter of a century after the assassination. At this point, Traficante was ill, he was on dialysis for his kidneys, and he was about to undergo open-heart surgery. While Regano was taking him for a drive, Traficante chatted with him in Sicilian. He said, Bobby, I think Carlos up in getting rid of Giovanni. Maybe it should have been Bobby. We shouldn't have killed Giovanni. We should have killed Bobby. Now, Giovanni was the Sicilian name used to refer to John Kennedy. In a court of law, I would have sufficiently established a motive for the death of John Kennedy at this point, but I'm not finished yet. The last piece of this puzzle includes the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald himself, Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was a strip club operator in Dallas. His nightclub was known as the Carousel Club and was a watering hole for local mafiosi, many of them working for one of Marcello's underbosses. He was raised in the Chicago Jewish ghetto and became involved in juvenile gangs as soon as he could keep up. He had a rap sheet about a mile long, but in true mafia form, he had never served time for any of those convictions. Jack Ruby also wrote to the Warren Commission, begging to tell the truth. However, 
He said he was afraid to speak because the prison he was in wasn't safe. He refused to spill the tea until he could be moved to another facility. He died at age 55 in 1967 from a blood clot that was complicated by cancer. And with that, all loose ends were taken care of. So, I'll let you form your own conclusions from here. I've done my best to include the full names of the people I discussed tonight, along with the locations and dates, to enable anyone to do their own research. Please share your thoughts about these events on the show's Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time on Amazon Music for the next episode. We'll talk to you later.